Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino, with me as always, Cole Swanson, plus we have two special, special guests, Kushboo and Christian. What's up y'all? Hey guys. Hello. And y'all can totally move the mic around too. Yeah. If you feel free. We, we want you to participate. <laughs> So, Kushboo and Christian are both fourth-year pharmacy students at MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina, and uh, they are starting their fourth-year rotations. Mm-hmm. Um, stuck with me. <laughs> so, that's the reality Not of a bad it. way to start. Yeah. So, so far, we're two for two. Uh, yeah. This is my second group of students this you know, yeah. new school year where I forced them to be in the podcast. Right. Hey, you want to come over and uh, watch a podcast? <laughs> sure, we can do that. Yeah, for sure. Uh-oh. Here you are. So, uh, yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about y'all's selves. I said y'all twice, so in case you guys didn't know from before, I'm from South Carolina, so I'm allowed. Kushboo, go first. Ladies first. All right. Um, so as Mike said, I'm a fourth year. This is actually my first rotation, um, luckily with Mike. And um, it's going pretty well. We had a crazy week last week, so this week is a lot more chill. So I don't know. We'll see what the year has in store for us. So. Why was it? Why was it crazy? Yeah. What was that? Um. Well, you had the plague. Yeah. Mike almost died last. Yeah, week. he almost died. I, I mean, He wants everybody to know that too. So. Yeah, I didn't, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. thought so. I was out of commission, so that's why the Instagram and all that stuff like that was down for like a week. It was terrible. But we are back, baby. We're back and up. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. What, you made it up. Kushboo. So, what's the plans after graduation? Um, I actually don't know yet. I figured with each rotation, I'll be able to kind of figure out what I want to do and basically hoping for the best. Either I'll get a job or maybe residency. So currently looking into acute care, but we'll see and retail as well. So Awesome. Very cool. Also, uh, I'd like to point out we're live on Instagram for the first time. We're using uh, the new and improved Apple TV so we can actually see the questions. Right. That was the big dilemma on Instead how we were going to go live. peering at the phone way over there to try to read it. And uh, Blake's uh, watching yeah. us now. <laughs> Blake's on rotation with me next month, so that'll be good. He's learning. He's learning. He's getting ready. He's getting ready to see what's coming. It's the preparation. Learn those trials. Oh, my God. Yeah, there you go. Trials, trials. Christian, man, what about you? What's, uh, what's in your future? Yeah, um, so this is my second rotation. Um, my first one was uh, general, like internal medicine with the VA, um, and now I'm here. Uh, I think it's probably the best way to start off um, your f- fourth year. Um, and then after after fourth year, um, I'm planning on doing like general PGY-1. Um, haven't looked into uh, a ton of programs yet, but probably um, going to look mainly in the southeast region. Yeah. You're pretty interested in like critical care and stuff too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thinking that route, yeah, that'd be cool. So you'll be a lot smarter than us soon, <laughs> very soon. Very soon, like uh, like some people we've had on the podcast recently. Yeah, well, because you watched uh, the ones with Brian Gilbert, right? That listened to the podcast and he just on sepsis. And yeah, all that. I saw a little bit of the sepsis one, um, and then I'm doing my grand rounds topic on um, like the he mentioned the trial that recently came out, like the differences between the crystalloids and so forth. So that's cool. Awesome. So today we're going to go over gout and, uh, you know, bear with us if we've kind of covered some of this before, because we, we don't remember if we've covered it in depth. We haven't done a whole podcast on it. We know that for sure, but it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> that's about all we know, but we've definitely touched on some stuff like, um, uric acid level goals, 
uh, stuff like that. And I think even the Fabuxa stat trial, but we're going to go all into it later on. So yeah, buckle your seatbelts. Oh man, it's, <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to be good. Yeah. We're also going to try something where we actually write down the topics that we've covered. Yes. And so that we're aware of what we've already covered and we're going to keep it a lot more organized going forward. While repetition is a great way to learn, you know, we, we don't want to be redundant. Yeah. Plus, we also thought that we'd only do this for like five episodes and people would kick us off of Spotify <laughs> and iTunes. And so uh, since it hasn't happened, the viewings and downloads and keep going up, I guess we'll have to, we'll have to come get more professional with it. A little organized. Yeah. We so, don't like being organized. Yeah, Cole's in charge of that. That is my job. <laughs> Anyways, we're talking about gout. So interestingly, gout is an extremely old disease. I'm sure all you guys heard uh, during your lecture, your professors probably brought up that um, it was the disease of kings because it's associated with purine rich foods, excessive alcohol intake, which was associated with royalty back in the day. Uh, but it goes back much farther. Uh, the Egyptians first identified it in like 2000 BC, or actually 2640 BC. Um, Hippocrates also talked about it in the 5th century BC. He called it the unwalkable disease for obvious reasons. Uh, and gout is, uh, came from a Latin word, guta, which means drop. The reason for that is because they used to think that gout was caused by an excess of one of the four humors. So once one of those humors was dropped into a um, artery or it flowed into an artery, that would cause pain and inflammation. So that's where gout comes from. And colchicine is an extremely old medication. Um, the uricosurix came around in the early 19th century. And now, of course, the modern treatment are NSAIDs and xanthine oxidase inhibitors, which we'll talk about. Absolutely. History lesson for the day. Whew. And colchicine, from what I've heard, I've done zero research on this to back up, but I trust the source that I heard it from. Colchicine was actually brought here by Benjamin Franklin. Is that right? That's what I've heard. And the turkey guy. Yeah. He wanted the um, the American bird to be a turkey, not a bald eagle. Bald eagle is such a better choice. I know. Come on. Yeah. Get what is that guy A turkey? I know. Ugh. Anyways, yeah, so supposedly he brought in colchizine from uh, Spain or France, one of those European countries those that were a lot more... Uh, across the pond. Yeah, that were a lot more sophisticated back then than we were. And um, apparently he suffered from gout, so brought it back and treated himself with it. So, kind of interesting. But yeah, so where do you guys want to start? Acute? Acute flare? Go for it. We talk about what gout is too, generally. You're right. I know. What am I doing? Which we got a nice little comment uh, from somebody on iTunes that we don't skip over the basics, which is it's kind of a fine line to walk because we don't want to get too into the weeds about the <laughs> basics of disease states and stuff. But I think it's good to give a little bit of a brief overview of what we're talking about before we get into the treatments. Good deal. You want to cover uh, patho then? Sure. So gout, it's mainly characterized by. Um, urate saturation of the extracellular fluid uh, it gets into the joints and causes like i mentioned before pain and inflammation uh, a lot of times it is more specific to one joint but it can be to other ones uh, there are a lot of risk factors for gouts that involve comorbidities your diet drugs that you're on um, people will have acute flares um, they can be recurrent over time and you can also have chronic gout which is usually associated with um, a tophaceous state or tophi, which are little crystal deposits uh, of urate uh, of urate that's precipitated out and uh, causes pain in the joints. That's generally what it is. So, you know, the, as far as 
seeing a patient present with this, you know, they have a gout flare, even, you know, first time, whatever it is, whether it's just recurrent or not, the big, the biggest thing we want to do is obviously relieve the pain from the flare. I've never personally experienced it, but from what I hear, it is extremely painful. And I've even heard of patients having, uh, having gout in like areas of, you know, like the elbow and things like that, right. where it's, I can't even imagine how painful that is. So we got to work on what we're going to actually do to treat the initial flare. Um, and so we can either give colchizine, like Cole was talking about before. Uh, it's been one of the oldest treatments we've had for gout. Um, what that basically does is it interferes with the neutrophils. It keeps them from migrating to the site of inflammation. And so you're, you're controlling that those those you know, chemical messengers, if you will, those neutrophils. So when they get there, they never actually reach the site and increase that inflammation. Um, we also can give just a general NSAID. Um, typically, we, we use either indomethacin or naproxen. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can also give steroids. So all three ways, you know, we're basically combating inflammation, but they do three completely separate mechanisms of action right and there's a lot that goes into deciding what you're going to use so uh, especially in patients under 60 NSAIDs can be a better option but as you get older of course there's higher cardiovascular risk higher risk of GI bleeds drug interactions and stuff like that uh, he mentioned naproxen and endomethacin I think Sulindac is also FDA approved for uh, treatment of gout yeah as well. it is that's true not as common that. Um, people a lot of people really like indocin but naproxen is good too uh, people even use Celebrex sometimes, uh, but the most common are definitely naproxen and endomethacin. Right. And the really the guidelines don't give us a direction on which way to go specifically. If right. there's not like different comorbidities kind of giving us an idea, um, they say to just basically, um, you know, use the patient to target whether you're going to use corticosteroids, anti-inflammatory, or colgazine. They, they haven't ever actually... Um, shown that one is better than the other mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of interesting you really can kind of pick one of the three i feel like a lot of times though they do end up going with colchicine colchicine is pretty common especially if it's more mild and they want to do monotherapy um, if it's more of a severe pain you can add one on to the other you could do colchicine with NSAIDs or colchicine with glucocorticoids so you're attacking both um, uh, pathways to the pain there um, the treatment can go anywhere from a couple of days to multiple weeks. It just depends on how well the patient's doing. Generally, you can look into stopping therapy two to three days after the resolution of the symptoms, uh, but you may want to be a little more careful with steroids. If they've been on them for a longer period of time, you'll probably want to taper it off over a week or so. Um, and in select patients, you might even go over a couple weeks. So as far as... You know, we've treated, we, we get the patient feeling better. We, we cut down on the actual um, gout, fl you know, flare itself. Now we have to decide whether or not we're going to manage the patient and have them continue on some sort of maintenance therapy um, or, hope, you know, kind of wait and watch to see if they're going to have a gout flare uh, again. And so there's, there's two major guidelines that kind of deal with gout. Um, and they're kind of conflicting, which is interesting. I, I've talked about this on uh, Alexa, I believe, and a couple of things. But um, there's the American College of Rheumatology. Mm -hmm. um, they are um, they've had the guidelines for a long time, um, and then now we have the American College of Physicians that have also come out with guidelines that are a little bit contradictory. However, the rheumatology folks are saying that they're sticking with their initial guidelines, and they're not going to change it up. 
So, you know, one of the big differences is if you do decide to put the patient back on like continuous maintenance therapy, Mm -hmm. if they are at risk for having another gout flare, if they've had multiple flares uh, and you want to keep them on maintenance therapy, one of the first questions is, okay, well, do we need to treat to a specific uric acid level? Right. Right. So, and there are definitely arguments both ways. So uric acid levels are not the only thing that determines a gout attack. We didn't go too in depth on diet and all that kind of stuff, but diet comorbidities are going to play major factors. And uric acid is more um, of something you can monitor to say, yeah, this puts them at an increased risk or they might not be at at, um, as high of a risk. But patients have gout flares with normal uric acid levels all the time. Um, But the goal, I don't think you mentioned the number, is less than six for the um, rheumatology folks. Uh, And the reason for that is because around 6.8, that's when that's the solubility maximum, basically, of uric acid. So that's when the crystals are going to precipitate out, and that's where it causes issues in the joints and causes the pain and inflammation. Right. And so, you know, because there's some meta-analyses and things like that, like Cole was saying, that don't, that don't necessarily prove that that decreases the likelihood of having a flare, that's the one that the American College of Physicians kind of threw out. They right. say that we don't have to treat to a goal... Uh, a goal level of uric acid unless you know other than just kind of guiding guiding therapy you know, right. guiding care um, they don't have to um, you know they don't have to set a certain number because even when we do shoot for six um, it doesn't seem to correlate with outcomes of them having a flare which seems odd to me i mean it seems very counter intuitive right. because but, we, and we like treating numbers like there's a lot of a lot of um disease states where we want to get them to a goal and it's like oh they're stable there but i think it is reasonable for it to guide therapy so if a patient is having recurrent attacks or they have tofi and you want to start them on maintenance therapy i think it's a reasonable thing to say okay we'll use this as a goal um, and we know that you're doing well if it's below six and that makes you lower risk generally speaking for a flare and that's really all we can do with these urate lowering drugs those antioxidant oxidase inhibitors and the urocosurics um, is they lower uric acid. They don't do anything for acute gout flares. They can actually even precipitate an acute, acute gout flare, and we'll talk about that. Um, but it's it's something you can use as a guide for sure. Yeah. So two different schools of thought on whether or not we should be monitoring levels in general. Um, one thing we didn't talk about is if, if you do decide during a flare, if you do decide to use colchizine, the typical dosing, they give you two tablets, and then an hour later, they give you a third tablet. So right. you have 1.8 milligrams. Colchicine comes as a 0.6 milligram tablet in the United States. And so they give 1.8 milligrams total um, over that first hour. Uh, and then that's that it for the day. And then they will do daily or twice daily from then on out kind of going forward. Until the flare is done. Right. Um, now, before, I can't really remember when this actually changed. I want to say it wasn't all that long ago. No, it doesn't seem like it was. But originally, they used to treat with really high-dose colchizine. They would actually give uh, around 4.8 milligrams over about six hours, different variations of that. Yeah. Um, and what they did is they basically studied the uh, using the AGREE trial. They studied 4.8 milligrams versus 1.8. Right. And wanted to see which one was more effective at reducing the inflammation from a flare. Um, what they saw was there was actually no difference between the two groups. However, you gave the person much more severe diarrhea. Right. 
um, to add on to their pain from a flare. I feel like we talk about a lot of medications that cause diarrhea. Coldrescine is definitely a medication that yeah. causes diarrhea. Yeah, it's not great. It's not good. But it's not fatty poo, but it's, it's diarrhea. It's definitely not. But it's probably better than having your foot feel like it's on fire. I would think so. Or wherever the joint that's affected. People describe, because it frequently, the ga- the uh, attacks will happen at night, and people describe just moving the blanket over the top of their big toe causes excruciating pain. So it's it's pretty intense. Um, and coltracine, generally, you want to try to get it started within, I think you maybe mentioned this, the first 24 hours. Did you already say that? I didn't mention that. Okay. No. First Good. 24 to th- 24 hours is ideal. Within 36. 36 hours, it's it's fine too. Um, and the reason for that is because at that point, the neutrophils have probably already made it to the site of action. So coltracine preventing them from getting there isn't going to do much. So post 36 hours, you're probably looking more into NSAIDs and glucocorticoids. I also don't think we mentioned that you can use parenteral glucocorticoids. Um, if a patient can take oral or if it's really confined to one or two joints and you feel like an intraocular, um, I don't think intraocular is the right word. That's eye. Yeah, that's yeah. the eye. <laughs> so if you think that an arterial injection would be better, then you can, you can go in, for that. Yeah, in the joint. Arterial. <laughs> Intra-arterial. <laughs> so uh, Cole, for those of you guys who are not aware, Cole just passed boards. And so he has I been did. studying for like two weeks straight of just nonstop pharmacotherapy. So his brain's fried. Yes. Well, I, his, thought, I thought about talking about glaucoma today, so that might have been where I was. Uh, yeah, I brought the, that was the I confusion. I did mention that, yeah. Probably so. Shoot. Okay. Oh, well. So bear with us, guys. It's 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 Cole's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's my fault. All my fault. You can blame the Naplex. Yeah, stinking Naplex. Oh, yeah, that thing. Ugh. Gosh. He, he crushed it, by the way. It was okay. He destroyed it. It's a, it's a pain, but yeah. it's not as bad as everybody thinks. He said, sure. 100, get out of my face. I'm going <laughs> higher. So he did awesome. Super proud of him. So, um... The, uh... Okay, so where are we at? So we got, um... We got acute therapy, mm-hmm. we and got um, we got I did want to mention with the glucocorticoids, one concern that clinicians might have um, is with glucocorticoid therapy, it can mask some type of infection. So um, a lot of times it's hard to delineate between an acute gout flare and maybe an infection, especially if there's not TOFI present. You have redness and swelling and pain at a certain site. Sometimes people think it might be a cellulitis. And if you give steroids, you're not really going to be able to identify that. Um, it might mask it. So that's a concern that you would have to consider. As far as the diagnosis of gout, um, it's very clinical. So they don't draw uric acid levels during, during an acute flare to say, oh, yep, he has an acute gout flare. This is how we need to treat him. Uh, it's very clinically based, and they even have calculators that they can use to determine if this is probably gout or, yeah, I think this is gout or this is definitely gout. Um, and that's kind of how they go about that. Good deal. Yep. To what I miss. <laughs> I had to step away for a minute to go deal with my dog who was yeah, barking. It's great. Uh, for those of you who uh, are listening and you're like, man, I feel like every other episode there's a dog barking. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to go you're ahead correct. and address the uh, elephant in the room. <laughs> We've tried multiple things to keep him quiet, and somehow he always waits until we are mid-podcast. Good stuff. Good All right. stuff. Where are we at? I uh, guess we, you have anything else for acute gout um no okay so i mean those are the the mainstays NSAIDs, coltracine glucocorticoids and when you're considering uh, maintenance treatment we already talked about it but it's got to be recurrent gout um the patients uh you can't get the uric acid level low enough or they have tofi uh, that's probably going to be the biggest things that you're looking at for using uh urate lowering therapy long term 
If you have a um, a woman that comes in that is currently pregnant, mm-hmm. um, typically, so special circumstances of when to choose one over the other. Um, if you have a patient that's pregnant coming in, um, obviously, typically looking at a glucocorticoid would probably be the best option. Mm-hmm. We don't want to give colchicine. Want to give NSAIDs? And uh, yeah, NSAIDs, you know, limited to the first twenty to thirty weeks gestation, but we would like to avoid them if possible anyway. Right. So glucocorticoids would probably be the best option for someone coming in that's pregnant. Um, Colchicine is also renally dosed. Um, something to consider. Allopurinol is as well, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, speaking, uh, it's colchicine is also not removed from uh, or by dialysis. Okay. A patient that is on hemodialysis should not receive colchicine either because the dialysis machine apparently is not able to uh, remove the colchicine. Gotcha. So, yeah, end-stage renal disease, we would uh, probably look at um, corticosteroids as well, and then the other ones we'd have to uh, consider the risks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What about anticoagulation? Yeah. So, obviously, colchicine, probably the uh, better option. Right. Um, If you have a patient who's currently being anticoagulated and you're worried about that. Because, you know, when said you're worried about stopping the platelet aggregation mm-hmm. platelet adhesion so you could increase Increased the chance bleed of bleed risk. risk yeah so yeah just a couple uh different things to consider depending on your uh, patient population all right maintenance therapy let's do it so the mainstay of maintenance therapy like we said are the xanthine, xanthine oxidase inhibitors um primarily allopurinol febuxostat was considered an alternative um before but there has been some new data that's come to light that's showing some concern with cardiovascular risk, right? Yes, correct. Um, so basically what they did is they, they compared allopurinol directly to febuxostat. And I'm going to actually pull the article up here. Christian, do you remember if the article had like a cool cool name? Was it like clear or something? No, I don't remember. If I don't remember. It like a catchy name or anything. I have a huge issue when the trial doesn't have a catchy I name. They, I can't remember it. got to have a catchy name. Um, but, uh, it was basically allopurinol versus fluboxostat. Yeah. They looked at about 6,000 patients uh, with gout and major risk for cardiovascular disease, or they had a history of major cardiovascular disease, basically comparing allopurinol to fluboxostat, uh, directly fluboxostat showed an increased risk for cardiovascular events. Um, and I believe an increased risk for cardiovascular mortality, uh, mm-hmm. long-term. So they're not really sure if that's because allopurinol actually has some cardiovascular benefit seems doubtful because there wasn't a placebo group in this trial or if uh, febuxostat had just had negative cardiovascular outcomes but at this point allopurinol based on that definitely preferred and really uh, as an alternative you would probably look more into the uricosurics before you would go with febuxostat a different xanthine oxidase inhibitor right um so the the allopurinol that you know the like we said xanthine oxidase did you talk about the like mechanism behind no. that at all so the xanthine oxidase inhibitor you're basically blocking that last um, step in the pathway to actually create uric acid um i believe what is it hypoxanthine to uric acid one of those um but you're stopping that last step and so the uric acid is never actually forming and so we're keeping it low um at the, you know low uric acid levels in the blood um now we used to never start allopurinol uh, or any other or febuxostat until the person had their acute flare resolved. Right. And the reason behind that uh, was basically 
because when if you think about your uric acid levels being high, uh, your body kind of gets used to that. And so when you start to first lower those levels, there is a chance where when the levels are going down that your body sort of sees that as your levels going too low, even though it's not really. Um, and, and it solubilizes your uric acid stores, releases it in the blood, um, and it can actually precipitate out another gout flare. Right, and they so, call that mobilization gout. Mobilization gout, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the thought process was fix the first flare so that you're not causing it to flare back up again and causing more problems. And standardly, um, a large risk was in the first two weeks following an acute gout flare. So they would say, okay, so don't start allopurinol or a urate-lowering therapy until you're two weeks out from that gout flare. Another reason is because during an acute gout flare, your uric acid levels are kind of all over the place. And if you were to draw one, it wouldn't be particularly reliable um, and and, uh, indicative of how your levels have been just chronically. So two weeks out is when they say, okay, you can probably get a reasonable level now and we can see where it's at. If your uric acid level is not elevated, then what's your rate lowering therapy going to do for you? Right. Probably not much. So you would, in that sense, that would be an argument for waiting, drawing the level and saying, okay, your gas level's high. We could get something out of this medication. And, you know, the way to combat that is if, you know, if you were worried about precipitating on another flare, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to draw correct levels, one, if you're following the guidelines to say you don't need levels, right? obviously it doesn't matter. Um, and if you wanted to start allopurinol, which a lot of times it is started now uh, during a flare, or at least right after a flare, um, you can give colchicine with that at the same time because right. you're blocking that neutrophil migration to the site of inflammation. And so the flare actually never happens because the colchicine is keeping all that at, at bay, if you will. Right. And you can also prophylax with, or and it, I guess I should say, alternatively, you could prophylax with an anti-inflammatory medication like NSAIDs or glucocorticoids. Colchicine just seems to be the most common. Right. Exactly. So, you know, that's the, that's the big reasoning behind whether or not we want to start Alpirinol in the you know in the middle of a flare right, right. after, and it also waiting. it also affects how you titrate alpirinol. So um, if you wanted to avoid that, you would probably start around alpirinol 100 and titrate pretty slowly. Standard doses are around 300 uh, milligrams, and max doses around 800. If you're prophylaxing, uh, you could probably reasonably um, start around 300. But if you were worried, you could still start around 100. So it it makes it that that concern is much less when you're prophylaxing for mobilization gout. Right. So, okay, so we have allopurinol on board. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if the person is still having flares on with allopurinol, that's kind of the big question is what to do now. Right. Um, one thing that I've noticed is we very rarely actually push patients to max dose allopurinol or even right. anywhere close. Uh, the most I almost ever see is 300, 400 at the most. Right. Um, the max dose allopurinol is actually 800 milligrams. Right. So, you know, one, we have to consider, can the person tolerate going up on the dose? Um, if not, then we have to consider what to do at that point. Right. Um, there's a couple different ways of managing this, um, especially if the patient has things like TOFI or other risk factors as well. I've had multiple... Uh, gout flares that year, then you can also give a colchicine, like a maintenance uh, dose of colchicine, either once a day or twice a day at mm-hmm. max um, for a period of time, usually three to six months and sometimes longer um, based on the patient risk factors. But that can be another way to kind of combat that reoccurrence. Yeah. Um, 
The other option, you know, we, we have other medications like the Yurkosurex. Um, so probenicid is the one that is probably the most commonly used, and even that is very rarely used mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. Um, it just basically increases the uh, renal elimination of uric acid. Um, not something that we see a whole lot of. Um, you would want to really avoid things like if a patient has a history of kidney stones. Right. Uh, we want to put you high risk for kidney stones. Yeah. Put you get get rid of that. Um, even even if it's a calcium oxalate stone, uh, uric acid levels can still precipitate out calcium oxalate stones. Yeah. So you want to avoid that. Um, and there is a, there's actually a new kid on the block as well, um, and that is the urat one inhibitors. Mm-hmm. So, Zerampic is the brand name. Um, this is something that, again, kind of uh, increases the renal elimination of uric acid. Uh, however, we absolutely, under no circumstances, use it by itself. Right. Because it can cause an acute um, kidney injury. Right. So, so, you'd always want to have it with allopurinol. Right. And it actually comes as, there's a brand name that has it in combination with allopurinol. Yep as well um the problem i have with lisinorad is the the data kind of backing it up is a little bit um weak sketchy yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's there i mean that you know you can you can debate either way with it but it's it's a little bit weak um there's some question as far as why um in the studies they didn't push the allopurinol dose higher um there didn't seem to be a huge correlation between, you know, patients that patients that were having these these acute flares already had uric acid levels. Um, not they weren't really a goal necessarily. Um, so there were some some different things of like, well, why didn't we optimize allopurinol? Why don't we immediately jump to uh, adding the zirampic on at 300 milligrams? Because 300 milligrams is the minimum the patient can be on. You have to be on at least 300 milligrams of allopurinol before right. starting. Um, the Zerampic lisinorab. Uh, so there were some there's some issues with with that. Yeah, that whole renal failure thing, not ideal. Yeah, not great. Plus, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah, definitely expensive. So really, after allopurinol, if they're contraindicated, which it's renally dose adjusted, I'm pretty sure anything under uh, creatinine clearance of 60, you're going to have to start dose adjusting. Um, so if they have renal failure, you're really in trouble as far as um, urate lowering therapy with the concerns with febuxostat, concerns with lisinorad, and, um, you know, perbenicid not being great in renal failure either. Right. So, um, yeah, so febuxostat, you know, the, the thing is, it's still brand name, right. as far as I know. It's got some, got some cardiovascular potential issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is definitely one I would probably stay away from. Uh, as far as I know, we need to double check this, but I think it was the College of Rheumatology, maybe both guidelines have said they prefer allopurinol. Oh yeah, I think they both over do. for buxostat. Yeah, and, but um, it is not renally dose adjusted, so right. that's like one of the few. That was the big claim to fame for it uh, for a while, but now we have other concerns. So it's it's a risk benefit thing at that point. So yeah, you have to really consider whether or not we're gonna go ahead and treat with allopurinol at this, or excuse me, febuxostat at this point. Yeah, I would say hold off on you know. Until you absolutely have to. Yeah. But, uh, and, and if you were going to, you know, I'm just throwing this in there. This is not necessarily evidence-based, but if you're going to, you know, if you can't use colchizine for whatever reason and you want to add on a second agent, um, using an NSAID long-term, not 
ever recommended, but if somebody was going to, um, I would say probably the better option would be naproxen um, instead of uh, indomethacin. A little bit less GI upset. Yeah, I've heard of sometimes if you can't uh, if you can't tolerate a um, NSAID using silicoxib and you know using that instead. There's some data that shows because the the other issue with silicoxib was we were worried about cardiovascular risk for a, for a while. And um, that the, there was a preci- the precision trial came out basically showing that there wasn't a difference between silicoxib and naproxen or ibuprofen um, in regards to cardiovascular risk, but they stated that it was a had a better and safer GI profile. Um, when you dig a little deeper through the the uh, supplementary material, you realize that the only things that were really driving that that benefit were uh, constipation and G, uh, iron deficiency from a GI origin <laughs> um, so not anything really all that big a deal but that is another option if a patient can't tolerate a long term uh, NSAID but I would definitely argue to not use an NSAID period but if you just have to do that um, and you're wor- really worried about them having another flare then uh, naproxen would probably be a better choice any, anywhere you know in regards to long term compared to the other NSAIDs yeah seems reasonable uh, threw that in there yeah, so that's uh, chronic management. Right? Yeah, and so again, we have the uric acid levels either being less than six or nothing at all, <laughs> no levels. It's up to you. It's up to you. It's what, you're fancy. what guidelines you want to follow, um, and yeah, just kind of managing the other the other risk factors. Yeah, and the other comorbidities are really important. We didn't really talk about that much, but hypertension, uh, primary central hypertension, especially, is definitely associated with. Um, gout attacks uh, in particular when you're being treated with a thiazide diuretic that can increase um, urate levels and increase your risk for a gout attack and in more particular hydrochlorothiazide is known for doing that so um, it's minimal but it can definitely increase your risk for me that's just another reason not to use hydrochlorothiazide um, you can some say that you can negate that by using an ACE um, or potentially an ARB like Losartan so Losartan actually has uricosuric activity so if you were um, had a patient who is high risk um, for gout and you've got them on some other stuff and um, it doesn't seem to be working but you're treating their hypertension consider losartan but if you have a patient who's high risk for kidney stones or they're having kidney stones and they have no other risk factors but they're on losartan that could also be an issue because just like probenicid it can increase your risk for that yeah that's a really good point and if you have a patient that is having kidney stones and gout flares, and you're worried about both, allopurinol would definitely be the best maintenance there because you're going yep. to reduce the actual concentration of uric acid to begin with, and so it's never actually reaching the nephron to be filtered out and precipitating out of stone. So yep. uh, definitely allopurinol. And there's actually some uh, that will use some patients that will have beyond low dose allopurinol just for kidney stone prevention. Not done very often, but there is cases of it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's not just HCTZ that can that increases uric acid levels. I think it's all thiazides. I think they right? all do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think HCTZ just because it's been studied more is known for it, but they yeah. all do. And that's that's the big uh, the big one to watch for is the the thiazide diuretics. Yeah. Um, loop. Do loops? Uh, decrease? I saw loops. Loops. Do they they increase uh, uric acid? I saw that they increase absorption. Yeah. It's the calcium that's the opposites right. from thiazides and loops. Right. Lotus aspirin as well can um, increase urate levels. 
Mm. Um, it's not necessarily a reason to stop somebody's baby aspirin if you are, especially for secondary prevention, even for primary prevention, but it may at least um, make you reconsider whether they need it, consider if they're really in that um, beneficial age group and risk factors and consider taking it off. Um, it has kind of a paradoxical urate increase at low doses. And then if you get like really high daily doses, it has uric effects. So um, if possible, it's not really recommended in gout. And then obesity. Obesity is another big risk factor. So it's a risk factor for everything. And they recommend, you know, like three to five pounds of weight loss a month to decrease your risk for gout. So, yep. So that's gout. That is gout. And if uh, you're curious about obesity, we have an episode on weight loss drugs. We do. Yeah. Harking back to that one. I do know about that one. Um, You guys have anything to add? No, it was kind of late, but going back to diet, I know you had mentioned like the um, diet. We actually learned in class that um, vegan diets can also cause an increase in gout flares. Really? And they say why? Um, Because that would would be a little counterintuitive because of like the meat products and all that is what's known for it. Yeah, no, I don't remember exactly. Fascinating. Um, I just remember, yeah, vegan diet being one of those things that can uh, increase the chances of gout. Yeah. Interesting. Coffee apparently might be associated with it, and they say that the DASH diet, well, they don't say. It's been studied in a few small trials, um, can decrease your uric acid levels. So we like the DASH diet overall. It's probably just because it helps with your blood pressure, I would think. So let's see. I'm trying to pull up uh, uric or purine high high purine foods yeah because, so um, generally i think of seafood and meats primarily right and i want to say that there is some vegetables as well yeah so for completeness sake since we're finishing early we'll go ahead and pull this joker up uh, yeah you say early but it's not like we have a time limit yeah, that's a good point we just go <laughs> till we're done so alcoholic beverages high purines stop you drinking so much guys i know what are you guys doing um, oh, duck is moderate purine for all of you who enjoy a nice duck a nice dinner. duck every once in a while. I don't know that I've had a lot of... And, oh, and uh, organ organ meats like liver. Ooh. <laughs> Where's the vegetable component? Maybe I'm totally making that up. We'll do that in... Uh, we'll do it we'll in let a, you guys uh, know Instagram what we find. For sure. I'm, I'm sure there's something out there. Yeah. All right, what else? Anything else we should cover? That's all I got. Hyperion vegetables. Studies show that Hyperion, such as asparagus and spinach. Hmm. Um, but studies are suggesting that they do not increase the risk of gout or reoccurring gout. But I'm sure that's debatable. I love so, asparagus. Do you? Yeah. Not a fan. Not a fan. Man. Spinach is good. Not a big fan. All right, Popeye. Yeah, well. Well. Some of us like to be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> as he sips on his monster. Yeah, as I sip on my monster. <laughs> Total hypocrite. All right. Well, thank you guys for hanging out. Appreciate you being here. Glad to have you. Kushboo, look alive. There. I am. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we'll uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Also, um, thank you for the comments. Um, we've gotten a couple emails from people with suggestions, and um, we definitely appreciate those as well. Um, if I have not emailed you back, I apologize. We're trying to get to everybody, but we get messages on like multiple platforms. Um, which, which we is like. We, we, we just, yeah, we do we encourage that. that. <laughs> I'm just, uh, sometimes we are, with everything else we have going on, very, very slow to answer back. So if, if I haven't gotten back to you, I apologize. Cole also apologizes. He's very sorry. 
But he had to Very pass sorry. boards, so I had to do that thing. And uh, yes, yeah, so thank you so much for the comments, questions, concerns, all the stuff we've gotten. And um, let us know if you have any topics you want to cover. Um, we're gonna try to have some more guests on uh, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. With uh, got some di- people lined up, some distance mm-hmm. um, guests. But uh, yeah, thank you guys for for supporting us and we've noticed the downloads and all that have gone um, up pretty significantly lately so we're very very thankful for that the fact that anyone wants to hear we have to say (laughs) is pretty humbling pretty awesome but um yeah so thank you guys for that and uh we will see you next time have a good one